Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, I'm excited for this podcast, Andrew. Yeah, you're not kidding. This should be a lot of fun. We talked about it earlier in the week. And uh, sure enough, in a little bit, second part of the podcast, we're going to speak with a soccer legend from over in England, Ian Wright, who's actually in New York currently uh, as part of the UK's Great Calling campaign. Uh, So we'll talk to him about that, about Arsenal, about his time with England. We'll get into everything uh, with him. That That should be really a lot of fun. Yeah, and everything else is happening in the world. It feels as if... I don't know. Last this time last year with the Super League, we thought it can't get busier than this. Well, it it really can. <laughs> yeah, it really can. We'll talk obviously about the situation at Chelsea and what's now happening with the sanctions against Roman Abramovich and his frozen assets. It's so funny because we don't like we don't soccer teams are so integral to communities and to like our our lives, our enjoyment. Like we watch, we don't think of them as an asset. Like it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like a Rolex watch, but like they're an asset for, of Roman Abramovich's. And when you freeze assets, they all get frozen. And Chelsea um, was not immune. No. And as Matthew uh, Saeed pointed out in a video that I think was some years ago, uh, it wasn't just for love of football that Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. There was a time when he may have had to put money into something where he could protect that money. And that place was Chelsea Football Club. And it is it's hard to know exactly how this is going to change that club, but, but it will, it undoubtedly will. And a lot of those changes Chelsea are going to be feeling quickly. Uh, So we're going to talk about that shortly. I know there were some people asking us yesterday that uh, wanting us to do an emergency pod for it. We, it was considered, but we knew we were recording today with Ian Wright. So we thought, you know what, we'll, we'll take a day, we'll digest it and we'll do all of it together on Friday podcast, which is where we are now, JJ. But we wanted to start with soccer, real soccer. Guys kicking a ball on grass. Men Uh, running around. That's exactly what happened uh, a couple days ago in Madrid. Wow. What a Champions League night that was. Is Real Madrid, they, I think you'd have to say, I mean, I know it's Real Madrid. I know they're probably going to win La Liga, but it was stunning to watch how that played out once, you know, when PSG has a lead and they're playing the way that they were playing for roughly the first, what would you say? 60 minutes of that game. Yeah. You know, even though it was, even though it was still there, it wasn't entirely out of reach. It, it sure felt like it for the vast majority of that game. And then you blinked your eyes and bang gone. When Kylian Mbappe raced through for the offside goal that we thought was going to make it two nil. Then we saw it was, clearly offside if i had told you at that point this is going to swing rapidly in the other direction in fact it's going to be one of the great collapses since the last great psg collapsed five or six years ago in the new camp against barcelona you wouldn't have believed it but it happened and this is one of the most memorable uh, real madrid comebacks but i mean we've seen particularly in the in their years of dominance with ronaldo we've seen games where they should have been beaten, but they, they, they endured and they, and they continued on in the knockout stages. But this game was, be, it, it felt beyond them because I think in our na- naivety, we thought that PSG had moved on from this brittle, this brittle setup of players, that they were beyond that, which was just a crazy thing to think because it hadn't been tested. And the minute it was tested, they fell apart at the seams. And it wasn't just the front three, Andrew. It went throughout the team, from the goalkeeper to the centre-backs to the midfielders and to that front three who were anonymous. They only managed, what, after the equalising goal, one shot after that? It was a wave of white shirts getting forward. It was, it was a spectacular collapse. It was. Uh, this will be the 18th quarterfinal appearance for Real Madrid. Only Bayern Munich have more with 20. So, you know, you wonder about this. How did they pull it off? How did this happen? Um, you know, you touched on a couple of the things there. I, I would say first off for Real Madrid, a little bit of good fortune. And, and that's fair. That's not a knock against them. But Mbappe was not far off from having a hat trick in this game, if not right. for two relatively narrow offside calls. The right calls. I don't think anybody would debate them. But, you know, it's close. Yeah, and he scored on them. And, he, you know, he's a tremendous finisher. When he gets in space, 
his ability, JJ, just watching him, uh, you know, I've seen him do this before. His ability to kind of like make the goalkeeper think that he's going like far post and then bring it back to the near post. Uh, he's such a unique, like he opens his body up. Like you kind of think, you know, where that ball's going, his ability to kind of juke a goalkeeper is, is he's something, he's something in full flight, Andrew, he's terrifying because he, he does this thing where he often just lets the ball run between his legs and he's doing, his legs are doing the faking. The ball is right. Kind of not involved, but if you go for it, he's gone by you. It'll suddenly become involved again. And he, he like, Courtois was just sold a complete pop there and he slides at home. Yeah. And, and, and that's another element to this. When he's in that devastating form, by the way, we thought he had a foot injury. We, we all saw the footage of him, of him getting stamped on. Really didn't seem to affect him at all. No. But when he's in that kind of form, you think this is, this is over. And, you know, Carvajal was so high. There was so much space in behind. It, it beggars belief that, this, that he ended up on the losing team. It really does. Well, that, that's the other side of this too, which you kind of also touched on. You know, we've said this before about any number of teams. We've talked about it once with Villa. I think we talked about it with Arsenal before. And now we're talking about with PSG. It's just amazing how far you can go if you just don't beat yourself. Just be normal. Yeah. And like, this is a comeback that doesn't happen if not for some carelessness from the PSG goalkeeper, Donnarumma, at the back. Um, and then on the second goal, you know, Neymar with a costly giveaway that sprung Real Madrid's attack back the other way, which led to the second goal. Uh, PSG has, uh, they've had five errors leading to goals in the Champions League since 2017-18, four of them in knockout stage rounds when they were limited against Real Madrid in 18. Also, uh, they had two against Manchester United in 2019. So this is, you know, it's, it's kind of endemic in them. In these big and moments, they do these things that, you know, just, they, they beat themselves. Now, here's where I, I, I balance the ledger a little bit. Um, and, 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 and I balance the ledger with caveats. This is, you are absolutely right. None of this happens if Donnarumma acts, just kicks the ball out of play. It was headless, senseless for Pochettino and um, Nasser Al-Khalifi to go trying to break into the referee or get a hold of the referee after the game, as reports are telling us, they were so incensed by this decision is utter nonsense. This giant lumbering goalkeeper is, has dwelt on the ball and it's a completely fair challenge in my opinion. Um, but that doesn't happen. I, 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 my balancing of the ledger in, in, in favor of Real Madrid make, you know, having a, having a role in opening the door to this victory was the substitution of Tony Kroos and the introduction of Camavinga. The energy that suddenly came into that midfield was, was, was truly something. I thought Camavinga was brilliant and it changed the game. Now, you still need PSG to shoot themselves in the foot and they duly obliged. But Madrid looked a better side when Camavinga came in. There's no question. Like Kroos, we believe, is still probably not 100% fit, but he was, it, it was just too slow in there. Now, there's other things. The goal brought an energy. It wasn't just a mathematical thing. Oh, now it's 1-1. The goal brought energy to Modric hmm. and Benzema. And it just lifted things. And yeah, it, it, it literally was a collapse. It was a domino effect. From the Camavinga comes in, the forced error, and then the next thing, it just, the whole house of cards falls apart. Now, the thing about this I suppose that that is curious is that Marquinhos has been one of their better defenders and he melted, fell apart. Kimpembe too. Verratti, Andrew, who I think is an excellent footballer and we've seen it on the international stage, not just with uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Gone. Like they were gone. Mm -hmm. You know, where there was no resiliency in this game from PSG. So before we go a little deeper into PSG, because we will do that, because they are, I mean, Real Madrid are, are the victors here and this is a famous victory for them but this failure from PSG is a, a huge part of the story. Before we get to that, if we're talking about the success of Real Madrid, we can go no further without really going in on Karim Benzema. It's time. It's time for this man to get his flowers, JJ. It, it is time. It's also been his time because when you weighed up the forward lines that he's played in, where he has been prolific, where he has 
been he's been an excellent player for a long time, but the limelight hasn't been on him. He now leads that line. It's belated. It's probably come later in his career than we would have expected. But while Ronaldo was there, while Bale was there for a little bit, there was a sense that he was an incorrect sense and probably more Spanish-centric football commentators would tell you, no, 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 he's always been key. But we haven't talked about him like this. There's also been the shadow of the stuff going on around France, which Mm -hmm. is unfair, but it definitely has detracted from the aura around him. And... Just he, like you said, give him his flowers. He absolutely deserves the plaudits uh, after that performance. Yeah, I mean, he must have looked at Lewandowski's 23-minute hat trick and just said, okay, I, I see that and I raise you a 17-minute second half one without any penalties. Um, he was spectacular. He joins Lewandowski as the only two players in Europe's top five leagues to be directly involved in 40 or more goals this season. It's only the two of them. Uh, he, passed, he passed Raul for second most Champions League games in Real Madrid history. I mean, like you said, this is a guy who he has had to wait his turn. Like yeah. he, there was, he was always, you can't say he's a role player. Like he's never been a role player. He's always been a star for, for this team. But the treatment of him has kind of been role player status. Ronaldo, like you said, was always the face of that team. You know, Sergio Ramos was kind of like the beating heart of that team. Uh, it just... He's even Modric was talked about. Yeah, Modric too. Like he was, you know, he was like the engine of the midfield. And, you know, he's 34 years old and he's had to wait. He's been with them for 13 years. And now his moment has arrived. And to say that he has embraced it, it's an unbelievable understatement. He's going to be the best player on a team that looks like they're going to coast to a league title. And they just knocked out a team that several months ago were the favorites along with Man City to win this competition. I'm thinking of some of his goals, Andrew. And as a finisher for, you know, a big, strong guy, uh, as a center forward, his, his ability to improvise, to open out his body at short notice for a ball, to guide it into the net, or what we saw for, for France against Switzerland, where he literally scoops back his foot to, dr- to, to bounce the ball forward and into his path. He's a brilliant impro- improvisational finisher. He's, he's really great. He, he truly is, and it's... it's I, I remember when he came, he burst through with that crop of players at Leon. I mean, what a production line that's been. And he, he stood out then, but he was more, ex- he's still explosive, but he was way more, as a youthful player, which is probably stands to reason, he was much more explosive. I think he's much more subtle now. I think he's, a, he's just become a better finisher. And we often talk about, you know, strikers. There's a new era of striker where, Maybe the, the FSG model of, well, he's hit 30, got to get rid of him, can't give him a new contract. If, if you look at, uh, at those strikers that we've talked about, Ronaldo less so now, definitely in decline, but Lewandowski. Yeah, but Ronaldo's also, what, 36? Yeah, right. If you're talking about 30 as the cutoff, he had a pretty good run after that, I would say. I, I'm not, we're not arguing that at all. But Benzema is in that, that category now of, of, a, of a guy where I don't care that he's 34. No. There aren't many better finishers in the world than him right now. No, he, he just became the oldest player ever to register a, a, a hat trick in the Champions League. Like Amazing. he's, there's no sign of slowing down here. It feels like we're seeing the best version of him now. Because speaking he's, of he's slow, given the space to do it. Speaking of slowing down, Luka Modric. Oh, <laughs> there was a moment in the second half that there. There almost always is in, in, in these high-level games where there's something that sticks in your brain and it just encapsulates the difference between the two sides. And it's Messi in a rare foray down the right-hand side, bursting away down the sideline and tracking him relentlessly like a Croatian Terminator. Is Luka Modric slides in, sliding tackle. What's, Luka Modric is not noted for these things, but the desire and the passion to get back. And he whips the ball away and sends Messi flying as well. And Ancelotti just nodding, just nodding in satisfaction in the background. Wow. That was a moment for me. So let's go to the PSG side of it now. And, you know, I think it's not an image that any of us got to see, but for me, the, like, the indelible image of this is what I picture in my head, the aftermath of this game. Because you can, just, you can sometimes get a sense of like where a team is at mentally with – sort of how they carry themselves in the immediacy of, of after a letdown like this. 
yeah. you mentioned JJ. They got Kalefi trying to allegedly storm into the, the official's dressing room and Pochettino irate. Crying. And then, you know, meanwhile, that's going on because they're mad a foul wasn't called. But the guy who was involved in the play, Donnarumma, is in the locker room now, depending on what you read, potentially physically involved in an altercation with Neymar over that play. And then Donnarumma is yelling at Neymar about his mistake after that. I mean, this is, this is just like an unbelievable meltdown on all levels. We, we, should, uh, we should be fair that the, the latest reports from both sides, from the Neymar and the Donnarumma camps, is that that didn't happen at all and that was made up. Now, the fact that we'd even believe it would happen speaks to the nature of this squad and setup. It's, I always felt it was too top-heavy, Andrew, but, you know, there's part of me, I'm still a dreamer. I still believe that, you know, maybe in modern soccer where positional, where building a team and, and, and building a team that functions as a whole is still important, but... It is the most important thing. I still believe maybe if you just front load your team with the best players in the world, you can get through. It's going to be fine. You're right. But the only thing about that is, oh, yes, they Mbappe, Neymar, Messi up front on, on paper is it's obscene. But like, yeah, OK, it's front heavy because of how ridiculous they are. But it's not like there were bad players behind them. Like they went out and got Donnarumma on a free transfer after coming off of his player, the tournament performance at the Euros. Um you know, we talked about Verratti, how highly we think of him in midfield. Defensively, they, you know, Marquinhos has been excellent for them. Kimpembe, like the, they went out and got Hakimi. Yeah, like, right. They're not, they weren't weak after that front three. They were, re, they were unbelievable up front and then really good behind them. I, I guess I you can't do it's it. It's hard to figure out. I guess you can't do it. Uh, part of it is you can't have, uh, two, three guys who are just not going to contribute on the other side of the ball anymore in the game. You just can't. And the second part of it is, and it's the part I would agree with you on, it wasn't just them that fell apart. It was those other players. It, it was those, what you would call the spine of the team. And it starts with Donnarumma, goes through the centre-backs. But by the way, Hakimi hardly covered himself in glory either. You know? Right, no. I, it, it, positionally, he wasn't great. Um and he's never, like, I don't know. I've never quite rated him as a defender. I always think he's mm-hmm. better on that, that other side of the ball. But, yeah, it wasn't just the front three. This, was, this is like a, a contagion that spread throughout the side. I, but they shouldn't, like, as a unit. And that's, I guess, what they're not. No football team should fall apart, Andrew, in the manner that they did after conceding a goal. They just should not. No, of course not. But this is, this is kind of now woven into the PSG DNA. Uh, in the last decade, they've blown um, four first leg leads. No one has blown more in that time. Barca are next with three, which, by the way, means Messi alone has four to his name. Um, so, like, they can they can be gotten to even when they have a lead. Teams are going to understand that now when they face PSG, and it just makes me wonder what will they be moving forward. I. Is, is this a sign that whatever this PSG experiment is, you know, it seems like it would surprise me if Mbappe is playing for them next year. And I believe he's their best player. Um, I don't know what Messi's future looks like. You know, I don't know. Like, are they going to continue? Like this felt like, okay, we're, we're going all in now. And if this doesn't work, does something need to be reassessed about the way they build their team? I mean, it, it feels like, It, it, as strange as it sounds, you feel like they do need to reset this thing, but how they do it, like, let's, let's take, take it for granted that Mbappe is going, right? He's going. His desire to go to Real Madrid will be fulfilled. Um, I, what is the point? Like, the team is not better. Like, Neymar and Messi, that's not, I, ca- I can't see a situation where this works. I, I can't. Something's got to give. So what do they do? They, 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 they try and move Messi on. Like I, I don't envision them doing that either. Neymar, like there's no place for Messi and Neymar to go. They're kind of stuck with them in a way. Like the, who's going to come in for them? Newcastle, you know, <laughs> Chelsea off the board. Manchester oh. City won't want anything to do with it. What happens? Because 
like I said, I'm not convinced that you with the other parts, you can't make this work. But with the famous parts, like you, it's amazing to me to say these words, but I don't think PSG can win with Messi. I don't compute. I can't speak because I don't know. I don't know how to handle that sentence. Yeah. I mean, look, you're you're right. Like they just lost in the round of 16 when they were supposed to have had the greatest team they've ever had after a series of great PSG teams. Yeah. Um, I can't look at this and like there's moments. There was a viral clip going around, JJ, that I thought was really telling. I always reference this quote because it just left such, such an impression on me when Graham Hunter talked about Messi and how you have to speak his language out on the field. He's yeah. so gifted. Not everyone speaks that language. And at Barcelona, it all worked. Iniesta, Xavi, they all spoke it. And it was a thing of absolute beauty to watch. At PSG, they don't. There's a clip going around of, of Messi surging into the box and Verratti <laughs> yeah. has the ball on the left side of the 18. And Messi is, he's got his arms out, like play it to me and, and we'll score. Like, yeah. this is what I do. And Verratti doesn't, he tries to take it himself, doesn't. And then afterwards you see, you know, Messi is, he's usually, I would say, even in his moments of frustration, he's not that exuberant. He goes crazy. He's screaming right. at him afterwards after they've lost possession. For, so is that, does that mean that Messi isn't Messi anymore? Or does it mean that he is on a team right now with guys who haven't necessarily been around him long enough to know how to play with him? That is I don't part know of that, it. I don't know that I can look at this and say he's done. Uh, I won't say that. You, you can't compute. Your, your brain is not wired that way. But like, so I always sometimes like to lean on people who go to games, like journalists who are at games regularly. And when you, when you, when you hear journalists talk about Messi, especially a special moment that he, that he produces, they almost always caveat, caveat with the fact that he didn't move for 40 minutes before that and 20 minutes after it. Like, it's so minimalist now, Andrew, that I wonder, as a footballing concept in the modern day, can you have a guy do so little? Now, why he got frustrated is, though I think it was John, um, John Muller of The Athletic pointed out that that cutback that Verratti should have made for Messi was how Messi scored 20 goals a season for the past decade. That exact cutback. And now it's not happening. So, yes. Also, he's older. He is older. And he spent maybe the last 10 years, maybe, maybe the last half a decade strolling around the field. And as you get older, you're only going to do more strolling, Andrew. Come to the park with me any day in Brooklyn. A lot of guys strolling. A lot of guys strolling. And they're of a certain age. Messi, in footballing terms, is, is at that age. And if a team is designed entirely to service this great player, are in fact three great players and their function is just to be served and not to do anything on the other side of the ball, then that's problematic. It's the way the game is. Maybe you get away with this 20 years ago. <sighs> like to hear you say Man City, no. Are we sure that Pep wouldn't find some sort of interest is... in bring? Like, don't you think De Bruyne could speak the messy language? Like Pep, Pep is already played Manchester United into buying <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo. Manchester City have already forced that, that to happen. Why would they play themselves now by taking on Messi? And I would just say, I have, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, but it, it, Pep still admires Messi. And apparently, after, when he comes in on a Monday morning, goes into his office at Manchester City, when all City business is done, or maybe even before City business is done, he sits and he watch, watches Messi's performances from the weekend. So, like, he, he still does admire him. But when you see the, the movement of Manchester City, just use that word movement and apply it to Messi. It, it, would, be, it would be a change for City. It would be an accommodation to sign Lionel Messi. So, before we move off of this, the last thing to say. The other day, um, you read that, uh, that tweet. What was it? A meme from... Uh... <laughs> what was it from again? It was from Moneyball. Right, right, right. Billy Bean. John, uh, again, the aforementioned John Muller uh, made it, who, by the way, he's a fabulous follow. If you like your stats and you're a bit of a, 
bit of a stats person. I, I think he's, he's, he's really, really great. I'm just digging it up now so you can talk. But, right, but, but so the, the gist of it was there's... The problem is there are City, Liverpool, and Bayern. And then there are Chelsea sometimes. And then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's literally everyone else. Right, so you read that and instantly yeah. I said, hmm, I wonder if the team that has won more Champions Leagues in the last decade or so than anyone else would feel offended by that in Real Madrid. Uh, and I wonder now if he if he would redo that and would include Real Madrid or if, no. if uh, we're not there yet. No, he wouldn't. And neither would Jamie Carragher. He still goes, you know, he said, that's a brilliant performance. Yes, great, great comeback. Amazing. Uh, uh, Vinicius, Cruz, uh, sorry, not Cruz, Modric, Camavinga, blah, blah, blah. Great performance, great comeback. Still not winning the Champions League. That was his take on it. And I kind of feel... We're in this zone again, Andrew. We were here with Leeds United. We were here with Everton. Are, is a team that good or is the opposition that bad? And no. I think pa- the Parisian collapse. And I, it doesn't mean that Real Madrid aren't a good side. They, they, they clearly have good players, but the Parisian collapse just overshadows all of it. Where are we in... <laughs> in reality, when Real Madrid are being painted as an underdog story, this, this like Ajax-esque project. I mean, I'm sorry, they're coasting to a league title in Spain and they just knocked out PSG with Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe. Like, they have to be considered a contender. They just have to. They are for me. I, they're in fine. it. I, I, you know sure, what? Yeah, if they wind up against Bayern in, in the quarterfinals or semis, I'll pick. I'll probably pick Bayern to I'm win, but it's City. not. But I'll think about it. Right, I'm picking City. I think Bayern might be a closer one, and I think Liverpool might is potentially a tighter one. Although I, I think Liverpool are a better side than Real Madrid right now. And again, we're talking teams, but but I just I I don't think. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is exciting. There's a little wrinkle thrown into it. By the way, we shouldn't live our lives completely tied down to what a, a meme by John Muller is. You know, we shouldn't. This is not the rules. There can still be outsiders. Again, Real Madrid as an outsider is kind of laughable, but there can still be teams that surprise us. I think, Finally, I think, uh, what... I think my, uh, my views on Real Madrid are, are ageist. You know, Modric, someone said Modric ran 10 kilometers in that game. I believe se- it. Which seems a lot for a guy of his, what is he's, he, 36? 36. That's a lot, Andrew. That's a lot. Well, he's certainly still capable. There's no question about that. To put a bow on this, JJ, Julian Loren um, of ESPN FC, who, who is a PSG supporter. I mean, I remember after they signed Messi, he was, it seemed like he was ready to throw a parade and somewhat justifiably. So that was a huge moment in, in the transfer window and in their history. He wrote this following the the collapse. He says, the season is now over for PSG. They will win league. Uh, but that is almost a minor detail. They failed to win the trophy day champions against Lille. They were knocked out of the coupe de France in the round of 16 by Nice and they were humiliated again in the Champions League at the same stage. This is the worst season the club has endured since Qatar Sports Investments took over in 2011, and it will be very hard to get over it. They've had a lot of famous defeats, PSG. I think I concur with our friend Julian Loren. I don't know if any of them are worse than this. Yeah, um, and the fact that they you know, not winning the title, losing out to Lille, a, a much smaller project than PSG, is not their worst season. Is just shows how, how singularly focused the club really is. Um, and you wonder about what happens now to Maurizio Pochettino because... I mean, I think the writing's on the wall, no? Yeah, this is a but, disaster. But what does that mean for... Well, he is himself, according to the reporting, himself and Eric Ten Hag are the, the two main front runners for the Manchester United job. Mm-hmm. Does the fact that PSG have failed under Pochettino quite spectacularly in this case, mean that United have second thoughts about, about that calculation. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. His, his reputation, look, you know what I think of him, but his reputation is going to take a hit here. Now, how much of it is his fault? I don't know. Maybe we'll never know exactly. Everybody will have their own stories, but back to the matter is he's the manager and this was an unbelievable failure. So yeah, his rep will take a hit. What an enjoyable night though. It was. 
Oh, it was. You have to enjoy that. Uh, I should say before we move on to the Premier League, Manchester City advanced. There was no <laughs> drama there, uh, so we continue now. Um, so for, before we get to uh, Ian Wright, uh, we just uh, when I did the rundown the other day, I was like, okay, we got some Thursday action, a lot of implications in the relegation race, and I was you know getting into it, and then the Abramovich news and the Chelsea news broke. And I hate to say this because like a lot of important stuff did go on yesterday, but I kind of, my head was turned, man. Like I, all I could really do was consume the Chelsea stuff. I was so, it's just potentially such a landmark moment in that club's history, which is now like, because of what they mean to the Premier League, it's kind of a landmark moment almost in the Premier League history uh, for this to happen. And, and the flux that it leads them in fortunately, JJ, because um, we like sports, you and I, but this is this Abramovich Chelsea story. It's kind of, it's kind of like almost where finance and politics collide more so than having almost anything to do with sports. So thankfully there were a lot of explainers that were sent out yesterday um, to kind of let people know, okay, here's what this might mean for yes. Chelsea from a footballing standpoint. So I guess I have kind of the cliff's note, the cliff notes here in front of me to clue people in on on what some of the ramifications are going to be. Um, so like we said, the UK government, they've frozen Roman, Abram- Roman Abramovich's assets. And like we said, one of those assets, of course, is Chelsea. Uh, those with season tickets or those who bought tickets to a match prior to March 10th can still attend. But as of now, that's it. No new tickets are being sold. Players and staff will continue to be paid, but the club cannot conduct any new business. No signings, no transfers. So once again, Chelsea, in for the second time in three or four years, Chelsea facing a transfer ban. Um, but Of also, their own making again. Yes, but of equal importance almost, JJ, they cannot re-sign their players whose contracts are due to expire. Azpilicueta, Christensen, and maybe most importantly, I mean, I know Azpilicueta means a lot to that club for how long he's been there. Antonio Rudiger. JJ, whose contract has been the source of a lot of conversation for this entire season. Are they going to extend him? Is it going to run out? Well, now they don't have a choice. It's going to run out. That's that's really important. Um, it's still unclear at this moment what exactly this means for their participation in Europe. It's still unclear what this means in terms of tickets sold as they progress in the FA Cup. I mean, if they're at Wembley, JJ, is there going to be like half the stadium empty? Who's going to be sitting in those seats? They can't sell tickets. Well, uh, they might sure- be. Their shirt the sponsors FM, yeah. have, have suspended their partnership with Chelsea, which from a aesthetic standpoint might actually be a good thing because I was <laughs> never on board with the three. However, from a financial standpoint, it's a disaster. That was 40 million pounds per year. Gone. Poof. I don't know. This makes their transfer ban from a couple of years ago look like child's play. I don't know what this means for their future right now. Well, I was listening to uh, Philippe Auclair the uh, eminent football journalist in, in both France and, and London. And I, he spoke this morning on Off the Ball. And his view of it is, if the sanctions are implemented, as, as we've seen laid out, then it will be, considering their debts, considering the way they generate revenue, Chelsea Football Club will not be able to survive. Should, the, should those sanctions be imposed as they are. Now, he did counterpoint this with by saying, uh, and well, not what he said, but he got the sense that the Conservative government in England will, with other agencies, they'll find a way to keep Chelsea going in a way that they wouldn't have extended to Bury or Chester or any other of the teams we've actually seen cease to exist down the Football League pyramid because of the size, status and location of Chelsea Football Club. And uh, Nadine Dorries, who is the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport of the United Kingdom, said this. She says her focus is to protect Chelsea FC, its fans and the, quote, national game. So I would say there's, within the Tory party, there's a, there would be a, a, a swell of, of, uh, of people, a, a, a group of people who would be very interested in making sure Chelsea don't go to the wall in the way that they probably will if these sanctions are, are, are imposed to their fullest extent. 
So the thing that complicates all this, of course, is that the club were already in a state of flux because Abramovich was putting them up for sale. With these sanctions now coming down, as it stands currently, he can't sell them. So they're so this is the, this is their situation now until you know until they have an owner whose assets are not frozen, but they because the assets are frozen they can't get a new owner. Well, and and the UK it, there is a scenario I suppose that where Chelsea are effectively sold by the UK government and all that money goes to the UK government because a penny of it can't go to Roman Abramovich otherwise right. this is not an assets freeze. So correct. How how might that work? Um, so. The BBC spoke with um, technology minister Chris Phillip uh, about some of this. Um, he says, Phillip says that uh, term, so I guess they're trying to, I guess they're trying to get a license which would allow for certain, certain elements of the sanctions to be lifted. Um, he says, if a buyer emerged, it would be open um, it would be open to that buyer or to the football club to approach the government and ask for the conditions to be varied in a way that allows that sale to take place. So whether or not that means the government would okay it, I don't know, but Chelsea's search for a new owner, I guess will go on and then they'll hope for some kind of leniency and allow the sale to occur. That's in a nutshell. That's exactly where we are right now. And, and I do get the feeling um, from listening to Philippe that there will be dispensations made to make sure that Chelsea don't end up like, like the aforementioned clubs that I talked about who cease to exist because they don't revenue wise, the streams of revenue that they have that they, that are now cut off are so, so important to them um, that the, the club will literally like, they still have to pay wages somehow, you know, for, for this, there's a cap on what they can spend for away games I mean there was jokes going around yesterday which I partook in where Thomas Tuchel will tell the players to bring a packed lunch on the way to Lille next week mm-hmm. you know and that they're going to be staying at a Auberge Dijonais which is a hostel just outside Lille like I mean you're right your opening gambit was correct the club will not be the same again um, it also brings the wider issue Andrew of and it's the old chestnut on this podcast about how do we properly regulate who gets to own football clubs? You're right. A a new light. I would, well, I say a new light is going to be shine on that. Newcastle's sale only just went through a few months ago. Right. Maybe maybe they just snuck in and this now becomes the turning point. Do you believe that though? Mm, No, quite not. Frankly, no, no. And, and, And look at the way the, Look at the way the tide has turned there. We're talking about the amazing Eddie Howe turnaround where they're now blasting themselves free of relegation instead of the fact that they're owned by a murderous regime. That's Now, now the, the thing I wonder with respect to Chelsea, um, you know, we, we talked about this the other day, how Abramovich and his endless wealth is so a part of this club's success. You can't untangle the two. I no, mean, he created they are, it. Right. So what does this mean now? Like, have Chelsea... Are they kind of at a level where their wealth, where it's almost self-generating, their sponsorship deals are, are so no. valuable, or are, or are they going to potentially recede into some kind of normalcy rather than being, quote unquote, a, a super league level club? Well, I mean, that's a question that's impossible to answer, Andrew, because what we have to see who's going to come in and take them over. Right. You know, if it's, you know, if it's Jeff Bezos, then they'll go on just fine. (laughs) I think they will be okay. Um, I think it was Max Rushton from The Guardian. He had an interesting tweet about Chelsea where he said, he basically said, this club has existed before Roman Abramovich. And now is an opportunity if Chelsea fans want to take it to be something different, to be a club that they can be truly proud of untangled from the affairs of a Russian oligarch. Do they want that? I mean, I'm not, I mean, there was reports of, of the fans yesterday chanting his name. They did. Yeah. Um, so, which uh, is not, it's not, I think great. they, I think, you know, they, they're living in the penthouse now in, in terms of, the, you know, football club prestige. I don't think they want to go back to, you know, not to say that they were, 
you know, living in a shanty before, but they weren't here. I think they've gotten, I think they've gotten used to the finer things. It's hard to go back to normal things after that, after you've had yeah, tasted but- it for this long. This is what Max said. I hope and I don't know how many Chelsea fans will agree. And I also think when you started supporting Chelsea is crucial to this. Um, That out of this, they can build a clean community club to be proud of. It might not win everything. It might not win anything. But it was a club with a famous history before Abramovich, and it can be again. Most teams don't win, and supporters still love them. The winning doesn't really matter. The division doesn't really matter. It's the routine, the relationships with friends, family. It's the hope, the pain, the dream. It saddens me that fans get blinded by money. It really isn't everything, and it really matters where it comes from. I hope this is a watershed moment. Our club should be owned at least in part by the fans. Perhaps that ship has sailed, but it would be a better place for so many reasons if it happened. And I can't... Someone asked me once if, if, if I'd be prepared like for Liverpool to, to win less. And here's the crux of it. To win less or maybe not win as regularly mm. if, if it was all fair ownership or m- much more like what Max laid out there, fan-owned. And you have to think about it. When those, those great nights we've had under the last few years under Jurgen Klopp don't happen without money, right? So mm. it's, it's not just for Chelsea to ponder upon this. It's, it's like, how do we want the game to look? And if it's just tribal, which I fear it's got that way, if it's just tribal about having one up on Arsenal, having one up on Tottenham, calling Man United a banter club, if it's just that, then a lot of fans won't want to go back to, or not go back, there was no back, but to go to something new. And I fear a lot of Chelsea fans have no interest in anything other than what they've been served for the past 20, almost 20 years by Roman Abramovich. And that's, that's probably where we are. And, and that's probably equal for, um, for lots of other clubs that are successful right now, Manchester City and, and Liverpool too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly true. Chelsea did win yesterday, we should say, uh, over Norwich City, further burying Norwich as their uh, march to the bottom continues. Um, they did. And, um, yeah. and we should also remember, I've seen quite a few tweets about this. You know, we're worried about, oh, we're Chelsea. Are they going to recede into some kind of mid-table mediocrity or worse? Are they going to be less relevant as a superpower in England? There are 700 people who do not earn millions who work for Chelsea Football Club. A lot of them are not working right now. Think of those who work in the merchandising store, which is shut. And their futures are in the balance. So we should think about them before we worry too much about Rudiger or Pulisic or anybody else. It's very true. A uh, couple other results yesterday, JJ. Just stop me if you have anything. Aston Villa three nil over Leeds. Oh God! Oh God! Um, for those of us who thought Marsh got it right in the first game against Leicester, the flip side to that, and I'm not saying Marsh got it wrong. Leeds looked like they've looked for the past ten weeks. Right. Um, this was horrifying, Andrew. Yeah. And um. And, and they came out, he definitely, he said something at halftime. There was a little bit of a bounce, uh, but they are so blunt up front. They've got nothing. Uh, their attacks generally come to nothing. They didn't, Villa only had to go down the field a couple of times and, and they scored on each occasion. And it was, it was, it's bad, man. It's really bad. And I, I said it before, Everton and, and, and Leeds's fate is partially in their own hands and partially in the hands of what Sean Dyche can do. That is true. Um, one of the other relegation candidates right now, Watford, they got hammered by Wolves 4-0. Shellac. Yeah. Um, Newcastle 2-1, winners over Southampton. A, a very good win for Newcastle. I would say they are, I mean, would you say now, JJ, they're they're safe? I think you'd have to look at the table right now and say whatever 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 segment of the population out there that thought it would have been hilarious for them to get relegated. I think that that, that dream for those people is, is not going to happen. They look to be all right. Four wins in the last five, Andrew, yeah. they are, they are blasting clear. And um, I think they've got a contender for goal of the season. Uh, Bruno Guimaraes with the back heel. I mean, it's a stunning goal. He has very little time to react. He's facing away from the goal and he's actually moving away from the goal and he generates enough power to blast it with his heel or the bottom of his foot almost. I'd have to watch it again beyond Fraser Forster. So that was truly stunning goal. Uh, you know, and it does help. 
when you can sign one of Europe's top midfield talents in January when you need to get out of uh, relegation bother. It's true. It does, it does help. Of course. Although, remember, they, they signed Kieran Trippier, who in his first couple games for Newcastle was excellent, and then he broke his foot, done for the year, I believe. So yeah. they haven't had his services, but uh, yeah, they, 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 appear to be, they appear to be all right. Um, I'll tell you what, that's, uh, let's go ahead. Let's take a break. When we come back, JJ, the moment we have been waiting for, really excited about this. Ian Wright will join us next here on Caught Offside. You're not going to want to miss it. More Caught Offside still to come. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we have been extremely excited about this. We talked about it earlier in the week on the previous podcast. He's an Arsenal legend, one of the absolute best football commentators in the business today, and he's kind enough to join us on behalf of the UK's great calling campaign to get Americans to think differently about the region. JJ, it's Ian Wright on the program with us now. Ian, what's up, man? How are you? Very, very good, my guys. Um, really good. I mean, I, f- I feel really cool. It's great to be in New York, you know. So good to name it twice. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm so close to the Empire State Building. It's just, I, I can't. I, it's just so exciting. I'm just wake up and I can just see it right there, the Empire State Building, man. Yeah, but Ian, you're supposed to be giving us the hard sell on the United Kingdom. So, so you, you, you tell me this, this great calling campaign. I've seen it everywhere. I've seen the red phone boxes. Um, as an Irishman. Give me a reason <laughs> why I should spend my hard-earned dollars to get to the United Kingdom in the coming months. Because it's amazing. It's an amazing place, especially with, um, with the Premier League, which, I, which is obviously an amazing product, what, we, what we've got in England. It's like a great campaign. It's promoting the best of what Britain has. And the Premier League is one of those things. And again, it's like tomorrow's event. It's, it's trying to create the buzz. It's traditional match days for fans here in, in New York. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. Um, because you know that the, when you, you, you look at the stadiums in England and the fans and everything about the fans is what, what the American fans, when they watch it, what they love, one of the most the, the things they love most about it. And we're trying to recreate that. Um, so tomorrow, so I've got 400 fans will get the chance to watch the Man United Tottenham game. And I'm looking forward to it because it's the first time I'm getting to actually watch a game with fans over here. And it's going to be Tottenham and, uh, and Man United fans. So I'm quite, I'm looking forward to how that's going to pan out for me as well. What's your relationship with Tottenham fans like these days? Because I'll be honest with you, I, I feel as if your career has, in TV, has made everybody love you to the point where I'm thinking, even if I'm a Tottenham supporter, where's my animosity for right? There is none. <laughs> I can't hurt Tottenham no more. I try to say that to them when I see them on the street. They always say, oh, you made me this, you made me cry when I was a little boy. And, that. and I, I just say it was never, ever business it was always pleasure to do that but the fact is is that now they they realize that i'm it's all about the football and the love of the game and i try to speak it how i see it if your team's brilliant i get stick from arsenal fans sometimes because i'm giving tottenham credit when they do well same with man united if they do well i'd say if they do badly and so what happens now is they see that i'm a fair pundit i'll just tell it how it is when they're great i'll say they're great and when their players are great and the thing is as well with tottenham fans as well as man united there's not many players that you got that you can dislike. I like their players. They got nice guys players. So you just say nice things if um, if they're doing well. And so that's why people maybe now look at me and they say I'm not. I can't harm them. But when I was playing, I, I wanted to harm them. I wanted to make them have a bad weekend. That was my job to make them have a bad weekend. And so you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I love that. That was that was part of it. But now I'm just a fan who's fortunate enough to be able to speak about it on television. Ian, when you're here, are you sometimes you find yourself surprised sometimes with with the passion this country has, not just for soccer, but but for the Premier League specifically? Um, yes, um, if I'm going to be totally honest, but it's a, it's a really beautiful and innocent kind of like passion because, like I say, in England, you you, you can say certain things about teams and stuff, and you get such nasty feedback. Where in America, the, the, it's passion. It's about the fan. They want to know. They they want to know more. They're just so infused. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to actually be involved in it simply because it's how fans, it's how I would like fans to be in, in utopia. It's probably how fans are. The American fans do not give you as much stick as the English fans because maybe they, I don't know, there's so much more used to it, more ingrained. And the American fans are coming to it new now and loving it, loving it as a product and what it does. And the, like I mentioned, the fans in the stadium, the fact that, a team at the bottom of the league can win a beat a team at the top of the league if they're not on their day. 
and the way it's so we don't know what's going to happen in the games and it's exciting to the end you know it's 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 for me now it's 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 amazing the the the, the enthusiasm that the Americans have for it and the fact that the, the, the World Cup's coming in 26 with you look having so many great players in European clubs top European clubs is very very exciting Ian um we work for ESPN which is owned by Disney mm. and if Disney were writing your story, your career story, and it was presented to someone, a director, he'd be like, nah, this, this won't work. This is too ridiculous. <laughs> Do you think it's even possible for someone in 2022 to take the journey you did to the top of English football? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's funny because I've been on the inside of it looking out. You know, you just constantly have to take the next day as it comes. There's a lot of rejection there's a lot of stuff that happened um, when I was younger. You know, like I mentioned, rejection, the fact that I wanted to play football so badly and there's times through my adolescence, my teens and adolescence years, I thought it wasn't going to happen. But the one thing that I had going for me all the time is my love for football. It's never waned. And, you know, of course, you, you like to think that could happen for somebody. You know what I mean? It didn't quite happen the same for, for, for Jamie Vardy, the way he came into the football. He didn't right. have the same upbringing when I was a kid. But, you know, what Jamie Vardy's done is amazing. But... You know, if the, like I, I watched the film the other day with Kurt Warner, somebody that I've watched the American game in, in uh, back home. You can watch it, the whole season of uh, an American football season. And I watched the Kurt Warner one. And from then I've been looking out for him. And I watched his film the other day. That's a story. Yeah. That's an amazing but story. It, so, but righty, righty, it's not that diff much different from your own. So Kurt Warner had basically given up or more or less given up. He was working in, in a, a supermarket. I was working, I worked in Sainsbury's as well. <laughs> I worked in Sainsbury's for a month, but the fact is I couldn't, I, I, I was so impatient because I had to work for a month, but you didn't get paid until the end of the next month. So I left. <laughs> so, I worked, so I went and worked on a building site instead. It took me another two weeks because my mum was getting ready to throw me out. So I had to go and work in Sainsbury's. It was like 20 yards away from us, but then, after that, once that happened, I remember like, I, I remember watching it when I was watching Kurt Warner's and I said, Jesus Christ, I worked in a supermarket. But the fact is, 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 is that the, the, the thing with Kurt Warner and probably myself is, is our love for the game and the faith that we had to, had to have in ourselves. Well, know, I'd love to think it would happen, guys. I'd love to think it would happen because then that story is something that would inspire other people. But it was, it, was, it, was, it was tough, man. Was you, tough. you turned down Crystal Palace three times. Yeah, yeah, I did. But simply because, and that was, that was because I was at an age where I was, so I was 21 there. So by the time I signed for Palace, I was 22. But by then I was angry with it. I was angry. I was tired of the rejection because when you go back to your area and you've been rejected again after being from the age of 10, everybody in the area is saying, oh, he's so good, he's going to be great. And, that, and it doesn't happen. And you're 22 and you're still not getting into... Um, and you're still getting trials and not making it. I had a problem with rejection in that respect. So when Palace offered me the trial, I said to them, nice, okay, because Sean was three. Bradley was just born. I just got a decent job. And I, ha I, I had to start setting down some, some roots, man. So I wanted to play football and look after the boys and do my stuff. So before I knew what was happening, I was scoring four games, a goal, like four goals a game, in the Sunday morning league thinking, well, I'm just bullying these guys because when I play against the professionals, I'm not great. And all the time I was just improving. I, was, I had to like literally have a pole vault to, to jump over some of these tackles these guys were making on me. <laughs> and I didn't realise that all this time I was learning more and more how to protect myself. And then when I went for the trial with Palace, by the time I, I did go, after turning them down three times, once I got fit, I thought to myself, when I saw the guys around me, I said, I could do this. I said, I could do this. So it was like, I, I signed for three months and I watched them and I said, I'm going to work twice as hard as the best player here. And that's all I've done. I worked twice as hard as the best player they had at the time, which was Andy Gray. I worked three times as hard as Andy. <laughs> Ian Wright joining us here on Caught Offside. Ian, you know, you're talking before about the, uh, the great calling campaign, getting people to think differently about the region. I want to talk about that region, specifically England for a second. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're kind of having this, this moment right now of international success. The mid-2000s, there's talk about cliques forming, depending on mm. what club you played for. Yeah. It, it kind of poisoned the team. It feels like that has subsided. When you were there in the 90s, what, 
What was it like? Was it hard to guard against those kinds of rivalries seeping into that environment? I don't think when we were, when it was me and Sharon, Sharon and all those guys, it was a different, it was a different kind of rivalry because the, the era you're talking about with Gerard and Scholes and Lampard and Ferdinand and Terry, they were all like, they were against each other because they were, they were so against each other in the way that they played against each other, wanting to beat each other, that that then broke into the England squad. They didn't even mix properly in the England squad. And when you look at, we had Lampard. So we had, we had Ferdinand, Terry, Ashley Cole, Neville at the back. We had Scholes, Lampard, Gerard, Michael Owen. You know what I mean? Put anyone up front with that. You know what I mean? Up front with Michael. And then you think to yourself, how do we not win anything with that team? And it's because they were so hell-bent on winning for their club that they forgot that when you get together as an international team, you are meant to be together. And that is why when we were doing it in the 90s, we were so close. We were close in 96 in the Euros and we were nearly, we were quite close, I'd say in 98 with, uh, when we went out to Argentina. But we nev- it was never like that. When we got together, as much as at the time, I, you know, I, the rivalry with Shearer and Sheringham and that was, it was intense. You know, I hardly spoke in respects of, you know, being like mates and stuff. You have a beer with each other, but it wasn't deep because you're trying to beat him. You're trying to be better than him. You're trying to win the golden boot. But I think that the rivalries with those guys were too deep, were too intense, and they couldn't get over it. And that is why, <coughs> excuse me, and that is why um, they, they were the golden generation. And that generation should have won something, but they couldn't because their club allegiances got in the way. And it's a shame because when you look back at it, it's hard to explain when you mention those names I've just reeled off and we won nothing. Ian, um, it, it's interesting you mentioned about how you guys got on. Have you seen An Impossible Job, the documentary about Graham Taylor and the qualification for 94? Yes, you feature pretty heavily in it. it it's yeah. very interesting. And there's one shot. You guys are away in Poland and you're having a meal together. And it's you, Paul Ince, mm-hmm. and um, Les Ferdinand. Yeah. And you're making everybody laugh <laughs> because you think the food is not that nice. We're, we're in the hotel. And, and you say, I think it's some kind of uh, maybe, and, and forgive me, Jamaican slang. And you say it, it was all crusty. And then you say um, um, that, that's the real lick or, or something like <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you're just talking there. And I'm mm. very conscious about you three guys there together. Yeah. Because you went on to say in recent years how Les Fer- Ferdinand has to be brilliant at his job yeah. as a director at QPR, as he was as a football man at QPR, mm-hmm. because he was black to yeah. keep that job and also to make sure that the, the floor is raised, so to speak, yeah. for other black candidates. When yeah. you played for England, when the three of you played for England, you specifically, did you feel pressure to perform because you were black? Yeah. Yeah, it's a natural thing. It's the, you say that, but the thing is, is that as a, as a black person going into anything where you're trying to achieve, you, there's pressure simply because you have to do twice as well. You have to be doing twice as well to give yourself the chance to get your foot in the door. And then once you get your foot in the door, like I say, you have to be doing even even more to try and stay there because it's it's it's, it's very tough. It, it's it's really tough. And I found that um, because no one could dictate me, because I knew I could play football, I knew I was good enough to play football. And if I didn't get in the England squad, it's because for whatever reason the manager didn't pick me. But I knew I was good enough, so I, I couldn't work any harder to get in there. You look at Incy as well, Les as well. Those three three of us getting in there. There's no way we shouldn't have been in there. All right. But when you're talking about like what Les is doing now, director of football, and in like literally the only one, you know, we talk about it. Bradley's st- just starting to do it at the Red Bulls now. He's shadowing, and he's trying to become a director of football as well. You have to succeed because if you don't succeed, because remember, there's no managers, there's no black black um, kind of people at management level, so it's very difficult to then try and open the door for someone else if you don't do well. So it's, 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 it's a tough one. And, and you know, I, 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 I'll say it again, you know, Les and what he's doing at QPR, it's a tough job. But like, um, he has to do that and he has to try and be successful because he has to make people realise that there's an avenue for them to get there as well. Ian, I know you're on a bit of a time crunch, so I want to get to uh, your former club, Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and get some of your thoughts on them because it's been such an interesting season for them. Think back to the way the season started and yes. just what the thought was around that club and the manager in jeopardy. And now here we are, mid-March. They're kind of, I think you'd have to say, in the driver's seat, yeah. top four. What happened? How did we get here from there? Mikel. Mikel and the culture change and what he had to do um, to try and change that dressing room, um, try and change the way those players were thinking. He had to come in with a different kind of game plan, what he wanted to do. A lot of people saying, oh, he's trying to copy Pep. But what he's done, in, and up to this point, um, and the way he's got people, he's got, got us to play, the way he's recruited. And, you know, when you look at our management team, in Vinay, our CAO, CEO is the youngest, you know, Mikel Young, you know, Edu Young, um, Murtasaka Young. These guys are four guys at management level who are kind of learning on the job. And they've had to do a lot of changes behind the scenes for Arsenal to get where they are now. And the recruitment of the players that they've got and the, the certain kind of player that they've got is why Arsenal are doing what they're doing. And the fact that he's got rid of certain people that he doesn't want in there is helped with the, 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 the dressing room and how the dressing room is now. You, you look at that dressing room and that dressing room is together. It's the youngest in the Premier League. Um, the most inexperienced, you'd have to say, in the Premier League. So with that comes inconsistency in performances. But at the moment, it is very consistent. Plus, Man United and Tottenham, they slip up. They do well. They don't do well. West Ham, are they going to stay? Is their squad depth deep enough? So there's an opportunity for Arsenal. But at the same time, you know, we can't get carried away with it. I thought top six would have been fine. The start of the season, I would never have said we'd get fourth. But they've played well enough to get there now. It's if they could stay there. And it's down to Mikel, the way we play, the fact that he's made the great signings, the goalkeeper, Gabriel, uh, Ben White, Erdogan. We've got Smith Rowe and, 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 and Saka from the from AL End. And, you know, I feel that he went to see Stan Kroenke um, not long ago to say, if we get in the top four, can you give me more? Can you give me more so as we can stay there? You don't want to get there and then fall off. So... At the moment, it's all going well, but if we don't make it, it won't be a disaster for me. If, but I'd like us to make um, the Europa League again because I don't want us to get to um, Champions League spe places and then we drop drop back off to eight for because that's that's not good. It's not good for the young players. So I think that we're progressively getting better, and we should not jump ahead of ourselves just because we are in fourth and we're in a good position. The, the three games in hand are tough. I think it's Tottenham, Tottenham, Chelsea and Liverpool. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. And Roy Keane's not going to let you jump ahead of yourself. No, anyway, no. Either no, for England thinking, or Arsenal. No, no, no. But I've got really good banter with him at the moment because um, it's, it's really, cause like when they, when they lose, you know what I mean? He's saying, yeah, it's Arsenal's. And, and it's, yeah, it's Arsenal's. And I say, no, no, no. Don't try and give me that rubbish, man. I know what you're doing. You know, I still feel Man United are the team because they've got the, they've got the players. They should be doing it. It's not even a question. Man United should be in fourth. They should be in third, should be challenging with the players they've got. But at the same time, they're inconsistent because of their structure, because of their system. It's, not, it's non-existent in respect to the way they're playing. They've just got very, very good players clumped together. But we have got an organised team that if we can get it together, we can we could cause problems. Well, Ian, this is such great stuff. The UK's great calling campaign, you're going to be in Brooklyn, kind of spreading the love. From the yeah. UK here in the US, watching some Premier League action, Manchester United and Tottenham. This is awesome. We could have done this for another 20, 30, 40 minutes. So appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I've, that was so cool, Andrew. I've, I've been looking forward all week to speaking to Ian Wright and, and to actually have done it. This is, I was all morning. I woke up early. I was just excited. It was, it was like Christmas again. I was like, you, a you child. told me before we started recording that you were nervous. I'm nervous. I, I, there are occasions when I get nervous. I got nervous when I interviewed Thierry Henry in the locker room at Red Bull arena. And he's just standing there top off desperate to get a shower. And he's got this little Irish twerp <laughs> trying to interview him for his podcast, you know? <laughs> so that, that was a bit, but nothing compared to, to Ian Wright, because as long as I've watched, been watching football, I've been watching Ian Wright. That's just the fact of it. He's been a constant throughout my life. I think he's, he's genuinely a good person. And I have only got through a portion of the questions I had for him. I uh, know. Could have really kept going. Oh, we really could have. It's funny. I, I want to not like him. Yes. But I can't. 
he seems like too good of a guy. Yeah. And um, I, I would I would advise anyone go to Desert Island Discs, go to their 2020 catalog on Apple iTunes podcasts and find the Lauren Laverne interview with Ian Wright. And it, it, it's a thrill to your to your soul. Um, what a life like he had given up on football. He pretty much yeah. given up on football. He decided he was going to be a laborer. He turned down Steve Coppola at Crystal Palace, by, by the way, in one of Palace's best eras. And he kept saying to them, no, 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 no. I, I, I got to look after my two kids. And his boss, the foreman, came to him and said, what's this? I heard you've turned down Crystal Palace. And he goes, yeah, no, I'm going to keep. I want to keep my job. I, you know, he goes, how long is your trial? And Wright goes, two weeks. Go take your two-week trial with Crystal Palace. This job is here for you when you come back. Wow. If you come back. Unbelievable. What a kindness. Does no. that man... Nothing, none of Cliff Baston's record isn't broken by Ian Wright. His career doesn't happen if that guy didn't say, take two weeks, you've still got a job. Unbelievable. It's an incredible story. It really is. Uh, so there you go. That's pretty much the podcast for this week. A couple, couple quick things, JJ. Um, I noticed that uh, the animals, I had asked about uh, any American oh. stereotypes from not Americans. So I was kind of, quickly looking through to see um to see the animals, the animals provided any but I, I saw some there was one guy who said for me it's the gun bearing tobacco chewing hey how you doing american <laughs> <laughs> that's the image that the world sees when they think of americans and they've so also the animals yosemite sam essentially is what the world believes that we're all we're all doing here the animals don't forget as well they've got the guy from uh, pawn stars standing beside the Pulisic jersey, and they've said, wonder if he's still selling this Chelsea jersey. Could get a good deal now. And one of them wrote, <laughs> what did they write? Hold on. He can finally buy that guitar. This is the guy <laughs> from Pawn Stars who went viral saying, Chris, uh, basically, Christian Pulisic is the LeBron James of soccer. And uh, he's this wonderful signed Chelsea jersey, and he wants to sell it to buy a guitar even though he claims he's a massive soccer fan. Yeah. So um, the animals don't forget, Andrew. One other one that another animal said for um, what non-Americans think of Americans. Um, now, this guy's from Canada. I feel like our, our cultures are really close, but I suppose they're different enough where he, his viewpoint matters here. He said uh, for him, it's fast food. Americans and fast food. White Castle was what he mentioned specifically as Perry. Yeah, there, there were many other things other than the New Deal. I, 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 no, nope, that's the only one. Uh, no, I think of uh, strip malls. Uh, that's a big American thing. Yeah. Um, but, but I also think the be beautiful countryside, you have the most amazing sunsets. Oh, yeah. uh, there's all those things. I could have said them, but um, I decided to go with the New Deal. No, it makes sense. I understood exactly where you were coming from. Yeah. That'll do it. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we, of course, will be back next week with another edition of Caught Offside. Our thanks so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Ian Wright. Really enjoyed speaking with him. And thank you to all of you for listening. Enjoy your weekends. Enjoy all of your soccer viewing. JJ, to you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. I'll see you, man. Take care, my friend. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 